And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, from the high desert in the land of enchantment in New Mexico. Boy, have we got a show for you tonight. I know this is that magical time, but as we've been saying now for years, the stuff that used to be contained safely between dusk and dawn is spilling out all over the floor. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, which is all about Dorian, the hurricane, for September 1, this is Labor Day, already Labor Day, uh, click on that banner, that will take you to tonight's guest page, and you want to uh, scroll down in Radio with Pictures to My Items. We're going to be focusing tonight on Dorian, this very bizarre hurricane. We're going to talk about the fact that from a variety of evidence, someone is manipulating it. And by metonymy, a lot of them that we've been looking at in the last several years in the news, we're going to talk about all that. And we're going to lay out the evidence and walk you through step by step by step how current technology, known technology, of course not known to us, but known to the inner group that's doing this, that is kind of like off the shelf. I mean, it's being produced by major American companies. It's being sold to the U.S. government. It's been emplaced all around the country. We're just not privy to how it has been and is being tonight used. So we're going to talk about Dorian a great deal. We're also going to talk about the fires in the Amazon, in Africa. Haven't heard about those, have you? And, of course, in Siberia. And there are other places on the globe that are on fire tonight. The, the, the kind of meta topic we're going to get into is this whole idea of geoengineering. How can a group of individuals behind the scenes, we're going to talk about who they are, how many, what kind of institutions they're behind, how can they manipulate planetary climate and weather and the mainstream, us, news organizations, academia, professors, uh, NOAA, you know, the National Weather Service. How can these people be in the dark? How can we have, you know, people standing up in front of very glorious maps these days with incredible color satellite images and loops and animations and all that? And how can they be so in the dark as to what is really going on? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. So, First of all, I want to call your attention to item number one in my uh, radio with pictures item. This is from a meteorologist named Dakota Smith. And I just wanted you to take a look at this because for some reason, these storms are not all equal in the amount of lightning they produce. This one, Dorian, is producing a tremendous amount of lightning, particularly around the eye in what's called the eye wall, those towering, you know, um, cumulus convective clouds that rise up to 40, 50, 60,000 feet. Um, they're producing an extraordinary amount of lightning. And so I just wanted you to kind of take a look at what Dakota Smith published on his Twitter page. So if you click on that link, you'll see an animation, an actual image animation taken from the satellites from the uh, uh, geostationary satellites looking down on this hemisphere and he put two of them together which shows the color view of the hurricane and then this uh, view of the of the lightning 
and it produced a very dramatic and very illustrative animation, which um, is very useful as we go through the morning. Item number two. Now, this is some shots taken by the astronauts aboard the International Space Station, which, of course, because it's not in geosynchronous orbit, but in a low Earth orbit, about 250 miles up, its path and the hurricane's location cross something like twice a day. So they got some good shots, and that that, uh, link will take you to those. Item number three is an update from AP, which was issued just a few minutes ago. As you know, we've been watching very closely these projected storm tracks, the so-called cone of uh, um, the trajectory. And when you see that red line going down the center, that's really very misleading because in these models, the actual track of the hurricane could be anywhere within that cone. And the cone gets bigger the farther out in time and space you go from where the hurricane is now. And some of the models have been predicting for the last 40 hours that this thing will move off the Florida coast and maybe parallel the coast to 50, 100 miles out to sea, missing land altogether. Other tracks, depending upon which models you look at, either the European folks or the American models, have some of them have it coming inland. In fact, one of them has it crossing the space coast, Cape Canaveral, which would be very intriguing because, of course, that's where the American NASA space effort is headquartered to get things into orbit. And it would be uh, very damaging if this thing sat over, over the um, space coast for any period of time. As it is doing tonight over the Grand Bahama Island of the northern Grand Bahama Islands, because it's moving in the north, I'm sorry, the westerly direction at about five miles an hour. It's taking like three or four hours to cross 15 to 20 miles, and some people can walk faster than that. And so the pounding winds of a Category 5, the the Hurricane Hunter aircraft measured with their drop sons, um, uh, wind speeds at the sea level, at ground level, of 185 miles per hour sustained wind speeds with gusts over 200. I think I saw one up to 220. I mean, this is this is a ferocious storm. And as we're going to hear tonight, it is not an act of God. It's an act of people who are playing God. And we're going to get into that in very deep detail with evidence. As you know, I'm a stickler on evidence. So um, they say it's going to be lingering over the Grand Bahama Island for 36 hours. Now, that that clock started, I think, a couple, three hours ago. I mean, can you imagine being forced to be on that island with winds howling above your head if you're in a storm shelter or in a safe room or something? Um, I don't know any normal structures that can withstand that onslaught for a day and a half. Um, Many, many years ago, before I met her, Robin told me what it was like to be huddled down in their home in uh, in Homestead, north of Homestead, Florida, for a day and a half with the three dogs. And she was by herself. She had only the dogs for company. And it was an unimaginable experience. I've never actually gone through a hurricane like that. I've been through hurricanes, but nothing like Andrew. And this, of course, seems to be uh, of the same power and the same ilk as Andrew, except instead of going straight across the coast at 90 degrees, 
This thing, if it wobbles just a few miles, and we'll talk about how that is effectuated, it could literally hug the coast going all the way north, making the turn to Georgia, all the way up to Georgia and the South Carolina and the North Carolina coast. It could be the most devastating storm in U.S. history. And as you're going to hear tonight, it is not an accident. In fact, this could be designed. Now, you're going to ask yourself, A, are these guys nuts claiming that this technology exists? And I, meaning you, the audience, haven't heard of it. And B, who would be so insanely evil as to plan this and to what end, to what objective? All of those questions tonight, I hope by the end of the next three hours, we will have answered to your satisfaction. Item number four is something completely different. <clears throat> As you know, several months ago, the Parker Solar Probe, named after a solar astronomer named Eugene Parker, who's in his 90s, I think he just hit 90, 91, uh, first time NASA has ever named a spacecraft after a living scientist well, the reason that Parker is important is because he basically came up with the entire solar-Earth interaction model that the subsequent 50 years of NASA spaceflight and missions has confirmed. He published these models in 1958. There wasn't a prayer of a, of a chance that the technology would be available to outfit a probe to the sun to whip around it at only a few million miles away. And today, on September 1 is the day that the Parker Solar Probe whipped around the sun at perihelion as part of its uh, mission over the next six, seven years to dip increasingly close to our star and sample its atmosphere, to measure its temperatures, to look at um, uh, details in the corona, which, of course, is a bizarre feature of the sun. I mean, nothing in nature gets warmer as you go up from a warm surface, and this does. The corona is millions of degrees in temperature, and the sun's surface is only 10,000 degrees. This is all in Fahrenheit. And, of course, that's been a major mystery in astrophysics for decade after decade after decade. And so the Parker Solar Probe is designed over the next seven, six years to try to find answers in situ by literally going through some of the highest temperature parts of the corona and sampling it firsthand. And after the, the first several months of the mission, it's doing fine. In fact, they're getting more data uh, radioed back than they imagined in their models they could, given the interference, the radio interference of being that close to a star. Oh, and one last thing that's kind of endeared me to Eugene Parker forever. It was Parker who published in Scientific American decades ago his discovery that the peak of the 11-year sunspot cycle, every 11 or so years, the sun goes up and down in terms of solar surface activity. At the peak of that cycle, every 11 or so years, the sunspots north and south latitude on the sun hang out at 19.5 degrees. And it was Eugene Parker who first pointed that out in a Scientific American article, article literally decades old. So without further ado, let me swing into what we're going to talk about this morning, which is much closer to home. It's this bizarre hurricane, this manufactured destructive machine, as we're going to attempt to prove tonight. And my key guest is Dane Wigington, 
who has a background in solar energy. He's a former employee of the Bechtel Power Company and is a licensed contractor in California and Arizona. His personal residence now features was featured in a cover article in the world's largest renewable energy magazine called Home Power, which is located in a large wildlife preserve that he owns and maintains next to Lake Shasta in Northern California. Many years ago, Dane made the decision to focus all of his efforts and energy full-time on the investigation of geoengineering. When he began to lose very significant amounts of solar power uh, input to his panels to an ever-increasing solar obscuration global dimming that seemed to be caused by an ongoing jet aircraft spraying and aerosol dispersion program. He also noticed a significant and accelerating decline in overall forest health, along with increasing ultraviolet radiation from the sun at many different levels. Now, these factors and others were catalysts that triggered Dane's testing and research into the geoengineering issue, which has now been an ongoing study on his part for over a decade and a half. Dane is the lead researcher and founder of geoengineeringwatch.org. He has investigated all levels of geoengineering, solar radiation management, and global ionospheric heaters, such as HARP. Dane has appeared on an extensive number of interviews and films to explain these environmental dangers, and he's now on the other side of midnight Dane, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back, Richard, and thank you for your continued willingness to address this issue, which if all of the ramifications are considered, again, I, and I'll make one point and give the mic back to you, but the reason I focused all on this is because if we look at this mathematically, because of all the downstream ramifications from climate engineering, destroying our ozone layer, disrupting the hydrological cycle, weather warfare, contaminating the entire planet every breath we take. If we look at it mathematically, short of nuclear cataclysm, the climate engineering, a.k.a. weather warfare assault, is the greatest and most immediate threat we collectively face. So this is basically a slow-motion World War III in progress. In a sense, but it's a very complex scenario. And I think that that's so important to remember because most people, the, the first question they ask is, why would, quote, well, some ask, why would anybody want to modify the weather? And on that question, I would answer back with this, why wouldn't global power structures want to modify the weather? They can bring countries to their knees without the populations of those countries ever even knowing they fired a shot. It is the, the most prized weapon of the power structure, the crown jewel, if you will. And the next question is typically, if it's so bad, if it's, if it's contaminating our air column and, and really threatening the entire web of life, why would, quote, they do this to themselves? And I would respond on that again. We have many, many examples of what they have done to themselves, starting with, this is only one example, the detonation of over 2,000 nuclear bombs on the planet that contaminated every living thing. Starting in 1945. Correct. Yeah. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Let's look at Dorian. What is your best evidence that I've looked at and I tend to agree with that this specific storm, the latest of a cavalcade of very bizarre storms in the last couple of decades, this specific storm tonight is sitting over the Bahamas and pounding that island hour after hour after hour, not because of an act of God, but because of an act of man. 
first I want to clarify that given the rapidly rising temperatures on planet Earth and the diminishing ability of the atmosphere to protect us from immense UV radiation, the convection is going off the scale. And what I, the point I'm trying to make is that nature is very capable of spawning cyclones. There is no question about that. In fact, the weather makers are very effective at suppressing cyclonic rotations. And we had a 12 plus year major hurricane drought in the U S that ended, I believe 2016, 2017. And those cyclones were being suppressed and pushed out to sea. Now, many might think that's a great idea, but cyclones serve the life support systems of the planet. When you throw a wrench that big into the, the system, it causes immense downstream cataclysm. So, when you say cyclones, see, I think of normal highs and lows as cyclones, and these storms, typhoons or hurricanes, as as a totally different animal. Sorry, just semantics, because hurricanes are called cyclones in the Western Pacific. So I'm sorry, I'm referring to the same the same animal. So I'll use the hurricane term. But the ability to manipulate these storms is there. Let me let me give, if I could, just a quick shot of history from 72 years ago. And I think this will add some clarity to the equation to put it into scale, if you will. Project Cirrus was the first attempt to modify a hurricane. It was a collaboration of the General Electric Corporation, the U.S. Army Signal Corps, the Office of Naval Research, and the U.S. Air Force. On October 13, 1947, a hurricane that was heading west to east out to sea was seated with an airplane that flew along the rain bands of the hurricane and dropped 80 pounds, 36 kilograms of crushed dry ice into the clouds, a very, very small amount. The crew reported, quote, pronounced modification of the cloud deck seeded. And the hurricane changed direction, made landfall near Savannah, Georgia. The public blamed the seeding, claimed that the reversal had been caused by human intervention. Cirrus, Project Cirrus, which is, again, the name of this program, was canceled. Lawsuits were threatened, officially canceled but not unofficially. These programs have never stopped. So the bottom line, the point I'm trying to make... So hang on, hang on, hang on. The program that I'm aware of that kind of took up where Cirrus left off was called Project Storm Fury in the 1950s. Correct, but these names, again, are still just semantics. And the the notion that Cirrus was canceled, I mean, that's only an official cancellation. There's no indication these programs were ever shut off. The, The... the experimentation was ongoing. In fact, let's wind the clock back even further. Richard, I'm sure you've heard many people refer to the long, quote, condensation trails after the B-17 bombers as proof that all of this is just condensation. You've had that argument probably thrown at you, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Well, we have historic footage that we captured, posted, of B-17 flying fortresses leaving a massive trail that was suddenly shut off in flight, engine still running, as if it was cut with a knife. What does that mean? It means that that was not condensation in the first place. And amongst that footage as well, we have bombers leaving trails from horizon to horizon next to bombers flying in formation, leaving, leaving nothing. But the footage that we have is, that's the most damning is an up-close shot from another aircraft of a B-17 shutting off its plume as if it was cut with a knife. That was not condensation. That was a, that was a dispersion. And since we know that climate engineering programs were deployed immediately after World War II, 
there had to be an extraordinary amount of testing going on, and the bombers appear to be those testing. And many would ask, well, why would our military leaders make our bombers vulnerable? Because, Richard, as you know, those trails made them very visible and easy targets, correct? I would think so. They did. And I would I would respond with this. Since when have military leaders cared about the soldiers ever? Let's look at the, the world or the detonation of nuclear bombs and how many soldiers were told to put on a set of goggles and go out there and, and watch that bomb and, and be a part of the shock wave that contaminated every single one of them, killed every single one of them. Agent Orange, how many soldiers died from that? Nobody cared, depleted uranium. I'm, I'm just stating that. Well, I remember vivid DOD films in Nevada taken in the 50s showing a, a, a so-called tactical weapon being detonated in the Nevada desert. And then USGIs, after the after the shockwave and the dust and the plume had gone up and the mushroom cloud had kind of dissipated, they're standing up and they're brushing each other off with brooms. Correct. Which is stunningly ignorant of basic nuclear physics. I mean, were they really that dumb back then, or was this another part of the control experiment to see how many of those GIs would die from that exposure? Thank you. That's exactly what I believe was the case. And we have the same sort of human guinea pig testing going on throughout history. Same with depleted uranium that's used in our ammunition for those listeners of yours that don't know what that is. And you can elaborate further, but it's radioactive ammunition, uranium-238. That's a very effective projectile. Cuts right through tanks, but once it's used, it contaminates the region forever. The radioactive half-life, about four and a half billion years. So that was used in the Gulf Wars, used in the Balkans. And all our soldiers, not told, all contaminated. And I would argue the same at the top, the same experiment was going on. They wanted to see what the effects would be. And so our soldiers weren't told that they were in highly radioactive battlefields. Well, we have all kinds of examples which have come to light because of FOIA. You know, there's the uh, deliberate, you know, Tuskegee exposure of, uh, um, you know, prisoners to uh, viruses and bacteria to see syphilis, to see what would happen. Um, We have the CIA performing experiments on folks in the 60s with uh, LSD and some people walking out of upper floors thinking they could fly. So there's always been a cadre buried under government of of sociopaths who are willing to do anything to further their mission what makes this different is what they're doing is destroying the very planet they're they've got to live on and so you have to ask yourself do they really have an escape hatch do they really have a way of leaving the planet or are we dealing with another level of sociopathy that has nothing to do with them, has to do with a new set of players in the game? We can see nothing that we cannot fully attribute to humans behaving poorly. In regard to those in power, psychoanalysis makes clear that there are various forms of psychological conditions have a blind spot, and that is this, that there's a near total lack of comprehension as to the consequences of their actions, even to themselves. Much like a cancer, cancer doesn't intend to kill its host, 
A cancer intends to proliferate at any cost the host eventually dies. The equation with geoengineering is very complex because industrialized, militarized civilization is in itself killing the planet. So for those in power, in addition to using weather as a weapon, they look at geoengineering, engineering the planet's life support systems, the climate, as a, quote, risk-to-risk scenario. In their eyes, the risk of doing it versus the risk of not doing it. Their objective is to maintain, maintain their hegemonic power, their total grip on power. So in order to keep business as usual, given the damage that's already being done to the planet, we're already geoengineering the planet with human activity. You can't cut down the forests, pave the planet, poison the oceans, and not have horrific results of destroying Earth's former energy balance. But the climate engineers, when we have issues like methane, and I, I want to clarify that issue because methane alone, I'm not just bringing up one of many environmental issues. Methane in and of itself could turn this planet into Venus, and I'm not talking about livestock. I'm talking about the formerly frozen, as we discussed off air, Richard, the methane hydrate and clathrate deposits. For your listeners, I'm sure your listeners all know about the Bermuda Triangle, Richard, correct? So I, I would think you know, so, yes. <laughs> the ship sinkings and so forth, but we now have ample evidence to indicate those are a result of methane expulsions from the seafloor. Formerly frozen deposits tend to release, whole fields tend to release at once. It aerates the water like a bottle of champagne. Vessels have no buoyancy. They go to the bottom intact. But that methane, once it hits the sea surface, migrates into the atmosphere, starts to cover the planet like a layer of glass. Heat gets in but doesn't get out. So we have a planet right now that's mathematically heating because of the greenhouse effect. It's not just CO2. It's methane. It's nitrous oxide. I think I've seen numbers that methane is something like 20 times more effective at trapping solar radiation than CO2. Actually, that figure is one of the ways that the science community tries to downplay the severity of what's unfolding. Methane is 20 times more potent than CO2 over a 100-year time horizon. We don't have 100 years. Over a 10-year time horizon, methane is 100 to 120 times more potent Mm. than CO2. Over one year time horizon, it's five, six, seven hundred times more potent, okay. depending on the density. So you have an unimaginably effective greenhouse gas. And as these deposits release, it triggers a feedback loop. The more methane releases, the more methane releases because the heating goes up. So we have, again, back to the risk scenario for those in power. They're not about to stop business as usual. They're not about to tell a public that doesn't want to hear it that we can't live this way or we're all going to die in the near term. So they have decided to play God with the weather to saturate the atmosphere with light scattering particles, solar radiation management. And the figure I was about to get at, so your listeners understand, I'll, I'll stop there. The planet is currently heating at the mathematical equivalent of the thermal energy contained in four to five Hiroshima bombs per second. That's 400,000 per day. Now, I would challenge your listeners to look up and verify everything I state because it's all hard science studies. So try to imagine a planet that's heating at that rate, the thermal energy equivalent, the heat equivalent of 400,000 Hiroshima bombs per day. Most of that heat has gone to the ocean, but that further heats methane, more atmospheric heat trapping gases. So the energy balance of the planet has been virtually obliterated at this point. So for the geoengineers, back to the original question, why would they do this to themselves? Instead of stopping business as usual and trying to do something that actually mattered, all that they're trying to do is maintain their current paradigm while in doing so ensuring, if we continue on this course, that none of us have any chance in the near-term horizon. 
But again, these are not dumb people. You don't get to be in positions of these levels of power by being stupid. How do they think they're going to survive if the planet itself biologically, ecologically, you know, goes up in flames? Well, certainly, again, back to the psychoanalysis of those that are at the top that are not stupid by any stretch if we're talking about IQs. But there's much more to wisdom than just an IQ. And, and yet when you have a cancer that each cell of which is only doing, quote, its job, and the cancer, in a sense, is a headless, heartless, soulless, mindless beast that simply grinds on because everyone is just doing their job until we hit the wall at full velocity, because these, these figures I'm citing are not hard to confirm and verify. They're, they're very simple to confirm. And yet we have very few in our society willing to do so because we have a society that much like the, uh, I give a very primitive example and I hope it's not offensive, but monkeys are caught by tying clear jars around a tree in jungles, they put a fruit in the jar, and the monkey reaches in and grabs the fruit and won't let go. And they walk right up on him, grab the monkey, mm. and... Hey, what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is planetary engineer, I think that's an appropriate term, Dane Wigington. And we're talking about things that are, to most people, incomprehensible. I mean, if you can't imagine that just the normal activity of technological civilization, strip mining clear-cutting, you know, producing coal effluents, drilling for oil, dumping all the CO2 into the atmosphere. If you can't imagine, as a lot of people can't, that that can change the world, how can you imagine that there are a group of human beings in perhaps we could call it the deep state who to maintain the current illusion that everything is fine are willing to ultimately destroy the world deliberately and apparently don't realize that they have no escape hatch. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland from the land of enchantment. We shall return. Anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
supports the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight on this Sunday night, September 1st, Labor Day. Tomorrow's a holiday, except for those people in Florida and Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina and then New Jersey. And, I mean, we have no idea where this is going. Now, now Dane, you're arguing that they are be able to program every mile of this trajectory to achieve certain ends. But before we get to that, what I think we need to do is to go back to how this technology works. And if you want to use examples from other uh, hurricanes and, and other events like this, obviously feel free. But I think we have to ground people in the idea that, no, this is not science fiction. This has been a technology developed very carefully over at least 70 years. And even the earliest experiments at controlling the weather had remarkable positive results. Well, positive depending on whose lens you're looking through. I mean, it worked. You know. It certainly worked. And again, I want to point out that if they had that kind of result then, in 1947, dropping an 80-pound payload, what can a military tanker do now, a single military tanker, which we have thousands of them, that can carry 100 Tons of payload. So you're envisioning a fleet of um, KC-135s, you know, aerial tankers, let's say, going out in formation, kind of strip mining the sky by dropping these long contrails of, of, you know, particulates at certain parts of the storm, and manipulating it that way, in in adjunct to other technologies, electromagnetic. We'll talk about in a minute. To, to basically steer it, to speed it up, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. Exactly. And I want to stress that nature absolutely can and is still spawning cyclones, but they are indeed being steered. And we can say that with certainty. And we have patented processes for hurricane manipulation and suppression. So we're not guessing on that either. And when you introduce too many condensation nuclei, too many particles into cloud formations, it changes the whole structure of those cloud formations. And depending on what those particles are, if you have an endothermic reacting particle, an energy absorbing particle, that can change the temperature gradients of the cloud formations as well. So there, there is very extensive technology here. And when you ionize the atmosphere, when you make it more electrically conductive, Richard, I'm sure you're, Listeners have seen what happens when you put iron shavings on a metal table. You expose it to magnetism. They align in certain patterns, if you will. We have the animations of, for example, with Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Maria, and others. We have the actual recorded 
satellite loops and energizing transmitter loops that show inarguable manipulation. So when these transmitters energize and you have an, an atmosphere that's saturated with these electrically conductive particles, it tends to repel those particles away from the source of radio frequency microwave transmission. I would challenge your listeners to look, look up geoengineeringwatch.org, Hurricane Harvey, geoengineeringwatch.org, Hurricane Maria. And you need to put the whole site in geoengineeringwatch.org because Google has, I think I told you off air, we're the largest site in the world on this subject. We were at the top of the first page for a search of geoengineering and Google completely deleted us uh, some months ago. So it's important to put our whole website mm. in. But if your listeners do that and look at the animations, they can see the actual event unfolding with these transmitters, for example, in the case of Hurricane Harvey, stopping that hurricane from moving inland. There's absolutely no question. They can look at the interaction of the cyclo- or the hurricane and the transmission network. So, again, we are not guessing. This technology is patented, has been. The effects are real. We, we simply have a population that wants to be that they're seeing condensation in the sky when they see some of the solar radiation management and, and using the science terms is extraordinarily important Richard if people want to have credibility in this issue please use the science terms climate engineering solar radiation management stratospheric aerosol injection there's a number of terms climate engineering the most simple but that leads to hard science so when they're seeing these trails from horizon to horizon they're told that's condensation Okay, let me let me have you pause there because I want to make sure we make an announcement before we get too farther far into the detailed descriptions of how this works. I want to go back to that in a minute. But at the top of the third hour, we're going to have two events happen. <clears throat> at the top of the third hour, we're going to be joined by a colleague of mine, Robert Morningstar, who has some new news on the geoengineering of Dorian that he's going to present, and we'll have a very interesting three-way discussion. Then at the bottom of that third hour, we're going to bring on Barbara Honiger, who is a colleague of ours who worked in the Reagan administration. She's been a critical um, activist in the whole 9-11 movement. Um, she has some new news on the 9-11 front, which is another major catastrophic event that, according to her and her colleagues, was not a bunch of radical terrorists from outside the country, was in fact fostered uh, by a deep state uh, conspiracy within the country to achieve certain political ends. So tonight is basically crazies in charge of our government who are running wildly out of control at several different levels. And so these two, uh, what you might think to be separate um, psychotic groups, in fact, may have a common kind of thread you know, psychopathy breeds psychopathy. So we're going to bring Barbara on at the bottom of the third hour to bring us an important update. There's some some new news on the 9-11 front. And as I said, Robert will join us at the top of the third hour with some new news on Dorian and some associated things. So Shane, oh Shane, uh, Dane, let, let's get back to, I'm, I'm thinking of that old movie with Alan Ladd. Dane, let, let's get back to how does this work? If I understand, you're saying that you have a fleet of military jet tankers that go to a specified latitude and longitude in the vicinity of a major cyclone slash hurricane, and they seed it by dropping, you know, hundreds of pounds, if not thousands of tons of material at key parts of this rotating cyclonic vortex in the atmosphere. And then you have land-based 
uh, radar systems that basically focus on that cloud of, of, of aerosols that are composed of a certain kind of material. It can be aluminum oxide, can be other things, and they interact with it electromagnetically in a certain specific way, and that winds up giving the bad guys um, the ability to control the intensity, the strengthening of these hurricanes, their paths, their trajectories, their projected future tracks, all of this. Do I have any of that wrong? No, you are correct. If I can add one caveat to that, we are not trying to provide a definitive answer as to the specific agendas. We can speculate on that. But so, so we don't know really their objective, why they're doing this. We can speculate fairly accurately on some of that, and I can on Dorian when you want me to do so. But the fact that the manipulation is going on is absolutely inarguable. And on one point, if I could make this, given the, the small bit of data I've given as to the severity of climate collapse, what we face is not – global warming. We would be very fortunate if we only face global warming. What we face is an abrupt climate collapse. And I am not a carbon credit fan. That's just one more sham. Uh, none of the science community is admitting to the single most climate disrupting factor of all, which is climate engineering. But what I'm, I'm stating is that the severity of what we face, the immediacy of what we face is far beyond what most yet have any inkling of. So you're saying we're close to a tipping point, and this isn't a linear process. It's logarithmic. So one day things are kind of okay, and the next day it's disaster. Let me clarify further. We're not nearing a tipping point. We passed a tipping point, a point of no return, mathematically, at least two decades ago. We will never know the planet we have known. If we are extraordinarily fortunate, we will salvage some part of Earth's life support systems. And I, I understand that is a very difficult pill to swallow. But if we do not face... Well, for most people, Dane, it's, it's impossible to swallow because they look outside, the sun is shining, the birds are you know, gathering at the feeder, the rabbits are moving across the lawn, if you're fortunate to be in the country like I am, and everything looks... It's a little warm. You know, some places it's a little humid. Uh, actually, in some places, it's actually cooler than it should be. We're going to get into that in a minute. But how do you convince people that we're in an existential crisis when they can't feel it? Let's give science statistics again, because I, I'm not here to give um, theory, conjecture, or hypothesis. If we look at – you must be in a, a very fortunate region of the environment to have that much animal life still. If we look at statistics, we have lost – 60 plus percent of Earth's wildlife populations in the last 40 years at the current rate of die-off, if the rate of die-off does not accelerate, and it is accelerating, the zero hour for no wildlife left on planet Earth is 2026. Let me put a few more statistics on this, and I'll give this back. See, again, when you say that, people are going to go, that's crazy. It's impossible. They're not, not going to believe you. Me. I'm, I'm not asking them to believe me. I'm asking them to investigate the facts. The species extinction rate today two to 300 species of plant, animal, and insect every single day. And people claim, well, things have always gone extinct. That's normal. This rate is 15,000 times the background rate. And I hope you can see from my statistics, I am not shooting from the hip. 
15,000 times the background rate. That's a million and a half percent of normal. There's nothing normal about that. So again, I'm, I'm challenging people to examine it for, let me give one site, one other factor in the environment. The geoengineering watch to my knowledge was the first major source to, to cite this based on our research with us forest service biologists. We stated that insect populations around the globe were collapsing. We said this almost 10 years ago and the science community their mainstream sources tried to make a mockery out of that. They're not laughing anymore. We now have peer-reviewed science study to prove what we said was exactly correct. Insect apocalypse, 80 to 90% of terrestrial and aquatic insects. I think people intuitively know, Richard, that if the insects can't make it, we won't be around much longer, 80 to 90% right now. I remember many decades ago when I was in, what was I, grammar school maybe? A very famous book by a gal named Rachel Carson. And I gave a book report. And that's what kind of alerted me way, way back when to look at this. And then some years later, maybe a few decades later, someone wrote a very important book called The Sixth Extinction. Remember who that was? I'm not familiar with that text, but we are certainly in the sixth extinction in the Anthropocene. Well, that, that was his argument that we're basically we're creating a sixth mega extinction in addition to the ones that extinguished the dinosaurs, et cetera, et cetera, that we're now in the major, uh, a, a major extinction of life on earth because of human man-made activities. But the numbers you're giving, again, going back to, if I'm just listening to this for the first time and I'm listening to two guys on the radio talking about apocalyptic events and you're citing scientific studies which, of course, gets back to fake news. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? When you read something in Google, how do you know it's real? I mean, we have so messed up the mind of so many people as to what to believe that I don't think any studies will make a dent because we've now been conditioned, certainly over the last several years, to not believe almost anything that officials tell us because we know they lie. So my question is, if this was all true, I can hear people asking, why don't the people who do these studies, why don't major universities, why don't major government institutions like the EPA, why doesn't somebody officially tell us the truth and sound the alarm? Well, let's go back to the FOIAs you mentioned earlier. For your listeners that don't know what those are, Freedom Information Act requests, we are legally entitled to this information. We have a team of attorneys at geoengineeringwatch.org. We submitted multiple FOIAs to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The first response we got back from NOAA on our inquiry as to all available data on any and every form of weather modification was that we got a paragraph back from NOAA that said they didn't know anything about any type of weather modification anywhere ever. Now think of the absurdity of that when NOAA has to sign off on several hundred state and regional programs every year, and they claimed they didn't know anything about any form anywhere ever, what do we do? We sued the U.S. Department of Commerce, who is the overseeing agency for NOAA, in order to get our FOIAs. We have some now, and that data is becoming increasingly damning. Now, to add to that, we have- Hang on, hang on. A department of the executive branch of the U.S. government operating under the president, which is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, sometimes called the wet NASA, they gave you a paragraph basically lying through their teeth that nothing like this existed, period, go away. 
not just nothing like this. They said any form of weather modification anywhere ever. Which uh, hang on, hang on. Think, let me let me finish my my, my train of sure, thought here. Sure. So then, as under the U.S. Constitution, you go to the third branch of the U.S. government, which is the court system, the legal system, and you apply court orders to the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act requests. You get positive court decisions that force NOAA to release the files and papers and studies they claim did not exist and so that's your evidentiary basis for some of the more outrageous statements we're making tonight. It's some of the evidence. We have much more, and we're we're still pursuing all avenues to acquire that evidence. But it's important your listeners understand as well that there is currently an illegal federal gag order on all National Weather Service and all NOAA employees. Shouldn't that be a massive red flag? Why would our government gag the weathermen? How do, how, but how, do, how do we know they're gagged? Because I just saw – I came down from upstairs. I've got the Weather Channel on 24-7 now, and I see you know, weather service people, NOAA people, standing up and talking about this storm and tracks and models and all that. You mean they are being legally, um, almost like a nondisclosure, prohibited from telling the American public who they work for the truth about Dorian? About any aspect of these programs, they're told what to talk about, period. We know that as well, by the way, from one of our FOIAs. We know the local so-called forecaster is literally reading a script passed down to him from NOAA. Who's doing the modeling for NOAA? Raytheon, private defense contractor Raytheon, who does all the weather modeling. Raytheon geoengineering contractor, patent holder Raytheon who does all the weather modeling for National Weather Service and NOAA. So we have literally the local, quote, forecaster reading scripts. And that's how the local forecaster, Richard, knows sometimes five, six, seven days in advance that a particular day will be, quote, mostly sunny. And on those days, we often see in many regions no natural cloud formations whatsoever. We only see the lingering, spreading, sky-hazing dispersions from aircraft. How did that meteorologist no, know? Wait, 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 wait. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me back up here and mix two stories together because we're going to bring Barbara on in the last half hour. There was a famous incident uh, in September 9-11 where a BBC reporter is standing doing what we call a stand-up on television, and she's talking about the collapse of Building 7, which is in the shot behind her, 20 minutes before it collapsed. You're saying that the weather guys you see from local stations and the networks, um, you know, the, the various MSNBC or CNN or whatever, that they are given a script that they know is a script days in advance, and that's the basis of their forecast, not literally looking at models and maps and projections from equations and computers and all that. Absolutely. And our FOIA states. And how so. come nobody says anything? They're going to die too. And their children and their, you know, extended family and their neighbor. I mean, how can you get so many people to be part of a conspiracy if they, given their inside knowledge, know the end game that's coming, like running into a brick wall at 300 miles an hour? But how many examples of this in the human race do we already have? Much like the Milgram experiments, if your listeners know what those are, I'm sure you do. No, 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 no. Tell people. Tell people. In the, the Milgram experiments soliciting people to inflict 
potentially lethal electric shocks in an experiment, a monitored experiment, and the vast majority of the public would do so so long as they perceived they were being told to do so by someone they felt was in power, someone they felt was in charge, a superior of some sort. They would literally, as part of an experiment, what they thought was inflicting lethal electric shocks to innocent individuals. So what we see is that – So hang on, hang on, hang on. So what you're saying is that we have a cadre of people, hundreds if not thousands, who are basically using the defense that was kicked out at Nuremberg, I was ordered to do it. They're also compartmentalized, though, Richard. I mean, that's very important to understand. Did the pilot in Vietnam that was spraying Agent Orange on his comrades on the ground, was he told, hey, this is going to kill your comrade? No. No, he, he, was, told, he was told it would save his comrades because it would clear Correct. the jungles and would be able to see the Viet Cong. Correct. And now, now let's look at – let's take Fukushima, for example. Fukushima is a triple nuclear meltdown, as you know. No known technology to fix it. No end in sight. Three China syndrome scenarios there. And well, there actually, more- there actually is a technology that could fix it, but they're not going to apply it. That's a long show. That's another. It has yet to be proven. Perhaps you know there's something on the radar that we're unaware no, no, of. No, 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 no. It was demonstrated on ABC News. Good Morning America. Right. That's a long conversation you and I need to have off air. Anyway, continue. Perhaps. Please. But the bottom line is, I think we all agree Fukushima is an unimaginable cataclysm, as was Chernobyl. Again, in slow motion. Correct, but because you can't see radiation, how many people really even try to comprehend its danger? And the HBO film on well, I know that you know ever since it happened, which was March of 2011, Robin would buy only North Atlantic salmon. We eschewed anything from the Pacific because of the radiation mixing with the gyres, again in slow motion. So some people try to take proactive efforts, um, but again, it's it's a it's an existential threat that's so invisible and long term, you can't get people really excited, let alone to believe the unbelievable about it. Much like our skies. Yep. Doesn't take a lot of deductive reasoning to look up and realize something radical is going on. You can't have grid patterns one day and nothing the next without something being dispersed from aircraft. You can't have one aircraft leaving a trail from horizon to horizon next to another leaving nothing without concluding that one of those aircraft is dispersing materials. And again, yeah, but again, most people, Dane, are uh, they're basically scientific ignoramuses. You know, we don't teach science in school. We don't teach how to do logical thinking in school anymore. We, you know, we teach facts that, of course, now are totally in question because depends on which institution you're going to trust. People look at those things. I mean, I've been showing ruins on the moon for decades. People look at the pictures, have no idea how staggeringly impossible any explanation except an artificial one is for what they're seeing because they had no background in how to view the world. I would like to take that a little further in that the segment of society that is the most in denial in regard to certain science aspects of, for example, geoengineering is academia. It's not the common man. We have we deal with dirt farmers in Nebraska that get it. They understand something radical is going on because they haven't had their sense of logic completely disconnected as much and many in academia have who believe and i've had this said to my face because i know many in academia richard said to my face by double phds unless a 
a government sanctioned institution, an official institution says it's so, it's not so. End of story. So unless the criminal admits to the crime, it's not so. And this is from a double PhD, PhD in academia, and that is common in the ranks of academia. So again, we have the so-called scientists, the educated. Hey, I will see your academic and raise you one major network anchor. I won't mention his name, who told me face-to-face in a private meeting in Washington, D.C. several years ago when I showed him evidence of things that I've been discussing for decades. He said to me, you know, cocked his head, looked at me, he says, but Dick, if this was going on, I would know about it. The ego was so prime that nothing, a sparrow couldn't fall given his sources that he wouldn't know about that all you have to do is to guide, you know, to do social engineering is to keep these key people in the dark by not having an official government mouthpiece tell them the reality, the truth. Many of them are willing to be in the dark, though, as well. And I've been in the field with, for example, USDA and Forest Service scientists, whom I know quite well, doing soils pH testing, where we have the historical baselines. That's essential. You can't tell how the soils have changed without those baselines, as you know, but we have them. And showing in Northern California from the heavy metals directly connected to climate engineering, starting with aluminum and barium, that are loading the soils with these reactive metals. And we see pH changes 10 to 12 times toward alkaline. And in the field with these men, they say sheepishly to me, what do you want us to do about it? They know exactly what's going on. They want to go to work at eight, come home at five, and not have their boat rocked. And that's cowardice in my mind. And it's very short-sighted because their kids will suffer and they will suffer and their neighbors. And uh, toward the end of the show, I want to get into what we can do about this because it isn't totally dark. There are things that can be done. But let's go back to evidence. Let's let's. Are you were you done with the historical uh, perspectives on how this technology developed to where? It's kind of off the shelf. It can be used on demand. Well, it's, it's, if I can make mention of one more important document your listeners can look up. By all means. More credence to the situation. If they search geoengineeringwatch.org, massive Senate document, they'll find a nearly 800-page U.S. Senate document that we originally found. The yellow highlights on that document are ours. We've highlighted the most key sections so people don't have to look, look them all up. But this is an acknowledgement, even going back about – four decades that these programs were on a massive scale then and that normally opposing nations, i.e. China, Russia, U.S., there's a cooperation on the climate engineering issue because of the cross-border ramification. You can't just geoengineer over your own country without affecting the entire world. So there's immense cooperation, even from normally opposing countries. It's carrying out even today. This is highlighted in the document. Also, the document states the need for total Total blanket immunity. Okay. Hold, hold it there. We're going to pick this up on the other side. My guest this morning is Dane Wigington. We're talking about planetary engineering. They're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Mm-hmm. 